0: Good afternoon. My name is Aaron Bastani. You're listening to Navarra FM here on Residence 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. Sadly, James Butler can't join us this week. I believe he's in Dorset attending his brother's wedding. But fear not, we have a great show for you today. I'm joined by Callum Kant. How are you doing, Callum?
1: Yeah, good. Thank you, Aaron.
0: This is Callum's second time on the show. Uh, You were previously discussing a project you're deeply involved in. Maybe you can just illuminate that to the audience and and your broader set of interests, what you do,
1: who you are. So uh, the project... I was talking about the first time round was uh, notes from below so we're a online platform that looks at the way in which work is changing in the 21st century um, and how workers are organizing against that so it kind of takes a rank and file perspective on the labor movement and the workplace as it is at the moment um, more generally I'm writing a book for Polity Press on Deliveroo um, and doing a PhD at the University of West London on uh, contemporary organizing in service work
0: so that makes you a very uh, very competent very uh How can I put this? There's not many of them. I'm scared of weather's coming. (laughs) Informed guest on the the topic of today's show, which is McStrike. Uh, And I'm sure many people listening to this have, in passing at least, seen the hashtag or that they know hospitality workers are on strike in a range of places. There's Wetherspoons, there's McDonald's. We'll go into detail as to where and when they've done walkouts, pickets and so on. Um, Can you sort of just say what is McStrike
1: How's it started? Who's involved? Okay, so what happened yesterday was the culmination of actually what's been quite a long process of organising. Um, so it, it's two streams of activity coming together, really. So the first of these streams is organising in the hospitality industry led by org- unions like uh, the Baker's Food and Allied Workers Union, which is obviously the one that organises McDonald's and the Mook Strike. Um, but they also organise Weatherspoons workers and Unite, who organise TGI Friday's workers. Now, this kind of strain of activity has been going on for a long time. They've had a a consistent campaign. They started out with, I think, two McDonald's. um, I think there's been two strikes previously led by the the Bakers um, and Unite together fighting over issues like £10 an hour and union recognition. Um, And also um, there was a fight over tips at TGI Fridays. So that's the first stream. That's relatively consistent. I mean, it's led by TUC unions. Um, It's kind of in line with what we'd expect labour organising to be. It's in a new sector. It's in a very difficult to organise sector, a precarious sector, but it's largely consistent with kind of classical trade union organising. Now, the second stream, I think we can date almost exactly starting in August 2016. So this is in the gig economy, primarily workers at Deliveroo and Uber Eats, self-organising in order to take large combined strike action. Um, So with these workers, we're really talking about 2016 saw a huge explosion, uh, hundreds of delivery riders in the street. They humiliated um, the UK manager, Dan Warne. um, And that train of organising has continued with consistent sporadic explosions. So we're talking Leeds, Bristol, Brighton, uh, Southampton, Plymouth, all over the place. There have been these little explosions now and again, and some cities having seen multiple strikes. Then these, for the first time yesterday, became kind of coordinated together into a national strike, led primarily by the IWW Couriers Network, so the IWW historically anarcho-syndicalist union, um, very illustrious history of uh, organising in the US and around the world. And these two streams have now come together because there was momentum behind the struggles of... Um, food platform workers and momentum behind the struggles of these hospitality workers and the timing worked out for all of them to take action at the same time. So it was a an very interesting example of combined industrial strike action where workers At McDonald's, who were preparing food, workers from Uber Eats who were going to be delivering the food were fighting together over common issues. The demands ranged from, you know, £10 an hour in union recognition to £5 a drop for the Uber workers. It involved occupations of the Uber offices, um, conventional picket lines, flying picket lines, solidarity demonstrations, conventional strikes, midnight walkouts, a whole variety of tactics, many of which actually if conducted by a standard union, um, or workers who are standardly employed would have been illegal, kind of secondary picketing and this kind of stuff. So yes, there was a really exciting example of these two streams coming together, and I think some qualitatively new developments in the British labour movement.
0: How's it diffused? Because it sounds like a, a, a wide range of tactics, several organisations are involved, several grievances are involved. Uh, so how's it unfolded since 2016 in particular?
1: So what we're really looking at here is um, kind of what Alex Wood calls mass self-communication networks. So you're really looking at WhatsApp, WhatsApp and Telegram groups as being the major form of communication, particularly for the f- platform workers. Um, and then with the kind of official trade unions, you have more standards forms of organisation. So you have formal union branches, you have kind of like paid organisers going around and helping people set up their branches and, and get prepared for strike action. You have formal balloting and all these kind of things. So you have the combination of old school trade union methodologies and New dynamic um, kind of mass self communication, many to many communication, organized um, trade union. Well, they're not even really trade unionists. These food platform workers aren't in the union. The vast Mm -hmm. majority of them aren't in the IWW. They're -hmm. simply organized by or coordinated by the IWW, which is why um, they're kind of talking about this as a network organizing model, right? They're talking about it as a couriers network, not a couriers union. So these two methodologies have come together in a very interesting fusion, which is, I think, what produces this diversity of, of action.
0: And for it to further diffuse, for it to scale up, what do you think would be necessary? Because obviously some people with particular political biases would say, well, the network will look after itself, it will scale up organically. Then somebody else who comes from more of a background which prefers, let's say, organisational brokering would say, well, now you need the intervention of a major union, Unite or whoever else, or more funding to the Baker's Union so they can hire more full-time organisers and they can broker uh, trade unionism, collective bargaining sort of tactics as we've traditionally understood them. Yeah, so I, what, would you,
1: what would you say? Yeah, I'm not ideologically committed to either model. I think that should be the, the first thing to say is that I don't think that the IWW have been particularly effective at organising courier workers and courier workers are using this kind of like decentralised model of organisation because they're all kind of 2011 social movement horizontalists, right? They're using it because it fits the technical composition of labour which they're facing. It fits the labour process. It offers them opportunities to coordinate that wouldn't otherwise be available. Um And also, similarly, those workers at TGIs, those workers at Wetherspoons, at McDonald's, are using more official kind of regular forms because they also to them seem to offer opportunities. If they tried to do what Deliveroo and Uber Eats workers are doing in their context at McDonald's, at Wetherspoons, it absolutely wouldn't work. So I think in order for this to progress, you need different things for different workforces. But what we need more generally is a revival of the rank and file labour movement. And now that means... That generally, socialists need to understand that our politics at the moment, we're achieving kind of a new kind of hegemony, right? We're a new kind of hegemony within the Labour Party. We have a place in kind of the mass political discussions of the day that we haven't had. I think no one can really remember this. Who's active politically today, right? But that kind of position needs to be backed up by an organised class basis. I mean, Karl Kautsky, big European social democrat. Um, in the period kind of pre-World War One, was very famous for talking about the merger formula, right, where you need to have the organized labor movement and then socialist politics, right, and they need to fight together. At the moment, socialist politics are running way out ahead and the kind of the organized class basis for it is, is falling behind. I think Paul Mason said this in the New Statesman also yesterday. So I think fundamentally what's needed to move on is a political transformation whereby we build the kind of organized class basis for socialism, which could implement a Corbyn program, which could back up, you know, the kind of social changes we want to see over the next few years. Our appetite for radical change is huge, but we also need the social forces to actually make that work, particularly in the face of potential backlashes.
0: Okay, so can you outline for me the sort of limits of the Corbyn project in the absence of this broader sort of insurgent class movement of workers organising?
1: So, How,
0: How do you think that would pan out? Let's say Corbyn goes to 10 Downing Street, May 2021. Give me a timeline.
1: Oh, God. Well, I think Allende, for all that we often use Allende, um, is worth returning to on this. Um, So you think of the Allende project, Popular Unity, coming to power uh, in Chile in 1970. And from there, you've got three years until the coup, right? They basically start to implement a transformational program. They have huge transformation. The Chilean working class's conditions are improved vastly in the early period. Um, You have a wave of nationalizations. You have a wave of total transformation of society in quite fundamental ways. But you also are opposed by kind of bourgeois class forces. The ruling class doesn't just take this transformation line down. They also return fire. So this is where things like employers associations begin to organize to prevent shops opening. Um, Hoarding takes place in order to deliberately drive up food prices. The truck owners is one of the famous famous examples, refused to use their trucks to move goods across the country. Now, Chile, long, thin country, logistics very important. And this is an attempt to kind of deliberately shut down a socialist programme in government. So I think we need to be quite realistic in saying that, you know, this kind of stuff could happen in the UK. If we're looking at a sufficiently radical Corbyn programme, one that I think you and I would like to see, the ruling class won't take it lying down. Uh, Ralph Miliband is uh, a good example where he he wrote immediately after the coup, Pinochet Um, gets rid of Allende. Allende is killed in the presidential palace um, shortly after 40,000 socialists are killed in what academics call a politicide. After this process, Miliband writes and says, you know, the same people in the UK would do the same thing because the Times editor, who was actually Jacob Rees-Mogg's father, wrote at the time that unfortunately this was necessary. Unfortunately, this is what, you know, any sensible ruling class would have to do. So I I think we need to face the reality that, you know, that the father of someone who is potentially going to become the Tory party leader, given a certain turn of events, was entirely committed to this kind of ruling class action. Um, and we need to think about what we could do to oppose that. Because otherwise, you know, it's not just financial control that be you know, people talk about the run in the banks, the pounds, all this kind of stuff. It's not only financial control which will be exerted, but also, you know, the deep state has many varied ways of, of asserting power versus a government that is isolated from a class basis that could push through its program.
0: Okay, so let's talk about democracy. Yep. Um, I think people are familiar with what a democratic trade union would look like. It may have its limits, it may have problems, like anything else, but it involves regular elections to a central committee or a national executive committee and a general secretary and accountability for people also on the shop floor. What does democracy within this networked model of organising look like? Because the counter-argument from older forms of trade unionism would be, well, actually, this lends itself to a very undemocratic way of going about things where hierarchy is still there, but it's masking itself as organising without organisations?
1: So I think these uh, Deliver and Uber Eats networks, it's worth saying they're incredibly porous. So you know you you know, you know, get a notification on WhatsApp whenever someone leaves a chat right? You've always got joining and leaving constantly going on so the, the London uh, WhatsApp chat which is being used to coordinate action yesterday, you were seeing a constant through flow of people in and out of this network. They were totally porous. Now that's obviously a strength and a weakness. Um, the fact that your organisational form can take on new members and drop new members at a second's notice allows massive spontaneous explosions. It also gives you very limited durability. But I think for most people in kind of like a social movementist model democracy here kind of means non-participation right like if you don't agree with the direction in which things are going you just non-participate you don't take part in the strike you break the strike you scab so I think we're talking about a dynamic where it's very difficult to get a bounded constituency from which one could vote right like it's very difficult to say how we're going to vote for um, a particular rep in this area with a bounded constituency that may immediately evaporate so I was a a delivery rider in Brighton I was involved in um, a strike there and organising there with the Independent Workers of Great Britain the IWG be and we attempted to kind of form committees and have reps and I was one of those reps and it was kind of this bizarre combination of voluntary and voting in order to get into that position where there would be these occasional meetings like a strike day meeting where you had a hundred people in a square. Now that hundred people would vote for their strike demands, they'd vote for who they wanted to represent them and then you would never get that constituency together ever again. They would never all be in the same place ever. So You have this real problem, I agree, with forming these democratic structures, with allowing the rank and file to hold their leadership accountable. But also, because of the fluidity, a bureaucracy finds it incredibly difficult to form because things are moving so fast. There's no resource capture as such because there's no stable leadership which could hold on to that. I mean, you find yourself, if you're trying to support these strikes, quite often chasing phantoms. You know, you're told, oh, they're going to be uh, at Deliveroo HQ at 5 p.m. or whatever. You go to Deliveroo HQ at 5 p.m. In fact, there's been a conversation on the WhatsApp group two hours beforehand in which Everyone decided they're going to be at Clapham High Street at 5pm, right?
0: Well, that's how it's organised. But in terms of how it's represented to the to the public more broadly, I mean, my critique of this kind of organising, and I, I favour it, um, cards on the table, my critique is that what happens is that central competences tend to be abrogated towards the media or communications people. Um, so, for instance, with UK Cut, very interesting organisational model, achieved a hell of a lot in terms of agenda setting. Um, I think in 2010... It was a a very senior Tory... I mean, they've all gone now. All the old old hands are now history. Very senior Tory MP in 2010 said, nobody cares about tax avoidance. Philip Green was uh, hired to be an advisor to the Cameron government around government procurement. Um, I really wish I could remember their name. Anyway, in the dustbin of history. Um, (laughs) uh, And within three or four months... Green has gone. I yep. think within a year or two David Cameron is speaking to the G7 saying that tax avoidance is you know, top of our agenda. Mm-hmm. Something very clearly and decisively changed around the agenda when it came to tax avoidance. That was set, I think, from the bottom up by social movement activism. That said what I encountered wasn't particularly democratic. It was yeah. highly effective. You yeah. wouldn't say that was a bad thing. It was clearly of net benefit to the forces of social justice. But it wasn't democratic. And what I saw was the possibility of a very scalable network around this stuff, but instead control was sort of wretched back uh, by a sort of Bureaucratic Centre, which said, well, we're not the Bureaucratic Centre, we're not overseeing strategy, we're not responsible for the politics, we're merely in charge of the, the media framing, how this is being represented more broadly. Are those tensions you find within this?
1: So, I think there is potential tension. I mean, with the IWW Courier Network specifically, you're mostly talking about if there is any centre that could reassert control of this. Um, You actually, within these network groups, so say you take Cardiff or Bristol, or one of the major cities where they've organised big strikes yesterday, you're talking about there'll be a WhatsApp group with, say, 150 people on it. Out of those 150 people, maybe 10, 20 are actually members of the IWW. Um, Out of those 20... Everyone who works for Deliver and Uber Eats, their only job is to organise other couriers. They have no responsibilities to like maintain the branch. They don't do any of the admin. That's all then shuffled back to the IWW kind of regular members who do all that administrative processing, who do all of that kind of like churn stuff. So if there is a potential centre, it's in that kind of IWW central branch. Um, I think the ideological commitment of a lot of these people does make that less likely. You know, they're, they're very strong. They've got ideological resources that very likely they joined the IWW not because it organised their workplace, because they had some historical affinity to the tradition of anarchism. I think it's certainly a risk. This struggle's very young. I think mean, the thing to remember is that it's literally two years that this industry, you know, has even been being organised from the bottom up.
0: I mean, it goes beyond it goes beyond you can't I mean, that As a very facile example, the Occupy movement. You know, the people that control the Twitter account. Let's say that this did blow up. Let's say that there were hundreds of wildcat strikes in McDonald's across the country. Um, the sort of the the critique would be. How that's chosen to be represented and the people doing that, deciding that, whether they like it or not, are abrogating to themselves certain leadership functions. And like I said, you saw that, for instance, with the Occupy movement. Are there any ways that that can be mitigated against in the here and now.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are definitely examples of that in what happened yesterday as well, right? When we're looking at what was going on with the Muck strike and Weatherspoon strike and TGI Fridays, a lot of this was very focused on creating a media spectacle, right? Like, actually, there was a a significant prioritisation from the centre of the unions, um, from the people leading the campaign in, say, the Baker's Union, that they were very, very keen on making this look publicly incredibly unified and incredibly strong, to the point that, intense amount of you know getting everyone with a, every striker wearing a t-shirt every single striker has to wear a t-shirt the chants are nailed you hear them using exactly the same chants as fight for 15 using the u.s and they're kind of they're very effective chants they're designed to kind of buoy people up to create a collective sense of power there's a lot of work put in representing this aesthetically and making it very coherent there however i think that does introduce a potential lack where actually if you look at a lot of the workplaces which were on strike yesterday um many of them didn't close now this is partly because, you know, you can ship in scab labour from around the country. McDonald's have so many workers from so many places. They have absolutely no problem hiring additional scab labour to to keep a, a restaurant running. Um, One of the only examples, fortunately, where um, a a workplace was actually shut was um, where I was, the picket lines in Brighton. Um, The picket lines outside the two Weatherspoons pubs um, who were on strike, the uh, Post and Telegraph and the Brighthelm were so effective um, that the managers actually closed them early. So the workers went to walk back in at 12 o'clock to do the last two hours of their shift. A a shift will usually end at 2 a.m. for a Weatherspoons worker. They close at 12, then they tidy up for two hours. And they went to walk back in and the manager said, oh no, we've, we're actually already closed, we've already cleaned up, we don't need you, you can go home. Um, and they offered to pay them fully for the entire time they're on strike, which is significant leverage. But you can see there that there was a lack of workplace organisation across all of those all of those um, Bakersfield United workers and Unite shops where they weren't actually being able to shut their workplaces. Now, workplace organisation of that kind is long-term, it takes a lot of work, it's very hard, but I think if there's a way forward to avoid this kind of centralisation and, and over-focus on media representation, you need a rank-and-file strategy in these workplaces. You need the workers of Weatherspoons to be able to shut down their own workplaces, determine their own strategy, and kind of set how they're going to run their own strike, which isn't necessarily always the case at the moment.
0: I mean, that's that's what I encountered sort of previously, especially returning to UK Uncut, was that the measurable, the key indicator of success was media influence. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually came at the cost of building a mass movement. That came at the cost of a democratic movement. And, of course, people don't want to participate in something unless they think it's democratic in whatever way. Okay, We don't have to define democracy here. Do do you feel that's something...
1: It was certainly a risk of that trade-off in, in some places. Uh, yesterday's media coverage was insane. So it you was look fantastic. At, you had uh, Radio 4, uh, the Today programme, then you had Breakfast TV, you had the LBC call-ins. All-day LBC, right? Absolute waves of this stuff over and over and over again. For actually, uh, you, you know, it wasn't. if you compare it to the UCU strike, for example, um, the UCU pension strike, which occurred recently, you had tens of thousands of workers on strike. Um, the strike yesterday was, you know, 10% of that, less than 10% of that, tiny compared, but got vastly disproportionate coverage. Why? Because... Because I think these companies are symbolic. People really look at companies like McDonald's Weatherspoons and they understand them as kind of symbols of exploitation. Weatherspoons in particular is an interesting one because their um, dear leader, Tim Martin, goes so far out of his own way to make himself a public figure. And he thinks that this gives him great advantages because he can kind of manipulate the way Brexit works. He used the infrastructure of Weatherspoons to push his own political line. Um, you know, kind of this neoliberal free free market argument is pushed out through thousands of pubs across the country. But it also makes him quite vulnerable because, you know, this guy is a multimillionaire. He's worth £332 million. He's very clearly a target for these workers who are being paid, you know, £8 an hour, that they can turn their fire on him. And as soon as you do that, you immediately get this dynamic where the struggle becomes much more public because he's made himself a media figure already. He's already made himself a baddie. All you need to do is then oppose him so that, you know, the workers we were talking to uh, yesterday at Weatherspoons, you know, these are these are amazing, amazing people who, who have to struggle to get by, who have to struggle to live in their own city because they're being paid poverty wages. Now there, you immediately set up a dynamic that I think basically any journalist would die for. You've got such strong characters, you know, the evil boss and then these, this mass of workers that I think there's a real capacity and a real taste for it. Do
0: you think Tim Martin could be the
1: next Philip Green? Oh, absolutely. Tim Martin is a bogeyman in the waiting, right? We just need to... He is so set... On, He opposed the living wage, for God's sake. I mean, the guy is a monster. He's a multimillionaire who genuinely doesn't think that George Osborne should have created the living wage, you know, this increased minimum wage, even when he did so. I mean, he would still be paying workers £5 an hour if he could get away with it. The guy is an absolute monster who has to be targeted. Uh,
0: just, to, just to be clear, we are offcom regulated. Uh, Callum means, in you know- a. In a media sense. Yes, yes, be, yeah. No, I mean, discursively kind of, targeted. Discursively, discursively targeted by his workers within the confines of the rule of law. <laughs> <laughs> Just to clarify. Um, okay. We were talking before coming on air about the sort of political economy, the material basis of the pub industry and the neoliberalism. Uh, given we're talking about Tim Martin, I, I wanted to talk about this a little bit later, but given we're talking about Tim Martin, can you can you sort of explain to the listeners the relationship between Weatherspoon's and neoliberalism? Because its history maps quite neatly onto Britain since 1979, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. So I think the really interesting thing about Tim Martin is that he is incredibly lucky, right? The brewing industry up to 1989 is basically highly vertically integrated, by which we mean that um, the breweries also in the pubs, right? They make their money brewing beer, and then they use the pubs as like outlets to sell that beer. The pubs themselves aren't particularly value producing, um, and then there's two kind of arrangements: managed houses and tied houses, whereby basically these all these pubs are in thrall to the brewers. Then in uh, 1989, you get the forced disintegration of the brewing industry. So basically, you get these things called the beer orders, where they say if you brew this much beer, you can't own any more pubs or whatever. It splits the up the the link Why? between the two. I think basically because you had a perfect example of monopoly capitalism operating in the sector where you just had vast, vast holdings and they weren't being particularly used very effectively. You know, there wasn't a lot of competitive pressure on pubs. Pubs weren't being optimized for value production. They were just run by the local drunk, right? That largely a lot of pub landlords were, you know, not pressuring their staff to produce value. They weren't kind of classical neoliberal managers, they weren't particularly interested in that kind of pushing value production.
0: I can understand the deeper sort of economic disposition that makes this happen, but where did the political impetus come from in 1989 in particular? So
1: it's the Competition Commission, but I think you can see this fitting into a wider narrative of kind of the neoliberal imperative to make every single sector of the economy competitive, right? So I think Uh, At the time, you you were largely seeing these kind of non-competitive pubs in the same way that someone might see a nationalised industry, bizarrely, because there wasn't the maximum imperative for kind of homo economicus to run these pubs and wring them dry. They were still viewed as kind of playing a community function. They were largely not um, run in incredibly tight-fisted neoliberal ways. Whereas once you disintegrate these two parts of the industry, once you have pubs have to be run for their own sake Tim Martin's very lucky he gets a lot of venture capital and he buys up lots of pubs so if you if you graph this I mean it's an astonishing rise there's something like um, the number of weather spoons in the UK increases by 1200 percent in the decade between 1992 and 2002. Right, So Tim Martin buys up all of these pubs which are being sold off by the breweries and starts to run them very hard-headedly where they don't produce their own beer. So there's no value being produced there. They've got to produce all their value in the pub. So they've got to be excellent human relations managers in the pub and they've got to exploit labour very hard in that particular location. Mm. in a way that that's where the value is coming from. That's where all the value is coming from. Where, uh, that hasn't been the case previously. And this also goes along with another fascinating cultural battle. I mean, we hear a lot about acid Corbynism. There's one of the methods of what Mark Fisher would call consciousness deflation, which was going on in this period, was um, basically rave culture. Obviously, like a very large thing. 1992, you're talking about um, lots of young people going out and taking pills in fields on their weekends rather than going into a pub, right? There was no... People weren't spending their money in kind of city centres getting leathered. They were out there having these slightly strange esoteric experiences with certain political valences where, you know, there could have been something very important going on. And in many ways, there was something very important going on with rave culture. Now, in response councils start to basically change their licensing conditions in city centres to draw people back in, right? So your pub no longer closes at 11, it opens until 2. There's this change in drinking culture where binge drinking, as much as it's lamented by, you know, the Daily Mail and New Labour down the line, is invented in many ways through local government and capital aligning to fight rave culture. Um, And there is particularly here consciousness deflation where you get out of the field, you're not having a collective experience with 40,000 people in the field in Hampshire, as Pope would have it. You're instead going into your city centre, drinking alcopops, Pops, which are kind of invented during this period, drinking high-strength beers and getting absolutely leathered there. And Wetherspoons are perfect at running that. That's their kind of niche. They combine this neoliberal management in the pub, a lot of pressure on the workers, exploiting them like they've never been exploited before, and then you combine that with this wider cultural turn. And that really generates the <coughs> modern cultural icon of Wetherspoons, which, you know, many of us love. I love Wetherspoons. I go to Wetherspoons all the time. Um, it's basically one of the only places where, you know, young people can afford to drink. But it's particularly produced out of this attack on working class culture as pub culture, working class culture as rave culture, and on the small pool of non-exploited time that existed in the pub.
0: So the Public Order Act is 1994, right? Yeah. And that was really the death nail. That was sort of the final nail in the coffin for rave culture. Yeah, so
1: you can't have repetitive music or whatever. It's right. It's music with a repetitive Very specific beat. piece of legislation yeah,
0: yeah. basically designed to destroy rave culture. Yeah. And so from there, your hypothesis, and I think it seems a very sound one, is that there was a big, big turn to binge drinking in these highly sanitized, highly commodified yeah. pub
1: spaces. And this is absolutely like a deliberate tactic, right? This is a deliberate tactic to get people out of taking pills and fields which I think is one of the remarkable kind of backstories to the whole New Labour experience, to mm. kind of that, that period. You can imagine alternative trajectories flying off from here in all sorts of directions. What if there had never been this kind of combined assault on the terrain of culture around where do you drink, where do you entertain yourself, where do you relax? It kind of turns social reproduction from this field of, you know, the classic Marxist obsession with production would say, when a worker's outside of the factory, you know, I'm kind of interested, but only very vaguely, you can see here that a lot of the neoliberal turn, the individualization of workers in the workplace, the breakdown of unions, the introduction of kind of like very atomized communities where you don't live with people who work in the same place, a lot of this was complemented with a breakdown of the kind of social fabrics which historically would have supported them. So this is an idea with Notes from Below, we talk about a social composition, but generally the organisation of life outside of production in that period was also a focus of the neoliberal offensive. I think this tells us something also about what we can do in return Um, kind of as the Corbynist project develops, how do we think about social life outside the factory, outside the workplace, as creating the opportunity for cohesion within the workplace? How do we think about the way that communities can be turned into sources of class power in many
0: ways? Mm, I mean, Jeremy Gilbert's fantastic on this. You've already mentioned acid-corbynism. I think he's been on the show before.
1: I think he was on the show last week or something, right?
0: Uh, But to talk about this, I mean, Uh, specifically. Um, But yeah, I think for, for younger listeners, for a younger audience, they might not be familiar with this. I mean, there's a pretty strong hypothesis out there that says that... One of the major reasons why you see a decline of football hooliganism in the early 90s, and I, look, I love football, <laughs> and I love it as a working class experience and a spectacle and people should be able to get inebriated. Give a think shout
1: out to Whitehawk FC. Am I allowed to? Of course, yeah. 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 Fantastic. Yeah. Whitehawk FC, the Whitehawk culture is going away to Billericay this weekend. I have, you know, I have no
0: problem with people standing terraces, drinking, et cetera, et cetera. But there does seem to be, you know, within this broader context, a historical turn for football hooliganism where a lot of these guys who are very violent, very mm-hmm. angry, it a lot of it dissipated because they were saturating their brains with these chemicals and fields at the weekend yeah, rather than yeah. beating people up. Yeah. And there's, there is there is a distinct social turn there. And it seems to be stopped in its tracks really in the mid-1990s. Yeah, and absolutely. like you say, that's the, the immediate lead up to Blairism.
1: And you can imagine a sort of counter history where... Acid casuals became kind of a new political subject of, of mass capacity. Maybe you yeah. should write that. That'd be a great short story.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Um, Okay, so we've talked about the political economy of Weatherspoons in particular. How does that fit in within the broader story of pub culture within 20th and 21st century Britain?
1: So pub culture is a really good way of examining, um, I think, monopoly capitalism more generally, right? So Engels in um, the... uh condition the working class in England writes extensively about like, the network of grog shops of public houses beer houses jerry shops hush shops secret distilleries he gives this amazing evocative portrait with a strongly and anti- you know he's not for it he's very moralist about these things working class drinking for him is a real danger um, but he gives this idea of like this huge kind of covert infrastructure across the city of drinking um, so we were saying before the show I, where I live in Brighton the area called the North Lane it uh, used to be lots of breweries and pubs and there would be a pub in the middle of every street so you're talking lots of terraced houses with pubs all over the place. Now this kind of um, disintegrated drinking culture was fundamentally um, over time fell prey to the, the tendencies of capital to, to consolidate. Um, so I think you can see generally the shift from um, something which was almost you know beyond it was it was very small scale capitalist accumulation going on to the massive centralization behind huge breweries. Um, and that trend over time really displays something which I think we're even now seeing with something like Uber Eats and Deliveroo. So there's a fascinating, um, Uber Eats is going to go public next year. Um, and part of what they're talking about in the run-up to this is they're systematically seeding rumours they're going to buy Deliveroo's European operation. Now this would mean that Uber Eats plus Deliveroo would be by far the largest food platform in Europe. They'd essentially be almost a monopoly, right? Just Eat is the only other competitor and they'd probably be run out of the market. So you can see the same tendency, you know, in the background of Weatherspoons, in the history of Weatherspoons, the centralization and decentralisation of capital is kind of one of the fundamental stories underlying how we got to this point where workers walked out from two pubs. At the same time, you can see this tendency towards the consolidation of capital is also playing a fundamental role in the way which which Deliveroo and Uber Eats workers are going to live in the future. Because are they going to be fighting against one monolithic platform trying to pay, you know, £3 a drop, less mm. than £3 a drop? That's now the future they're staring down the barrel of. Because a lot of these workers, you know, there's been a systematic attack on wages in food platforms over the last two years that could go considerably further if this monopoly.
0: But also, I suppose, for the, for the food producers, for the restaurants, for yeah. the takeaways, if there is the same tendency there, like you're saying, with the pub and Wetherspoons, then increasingly value, as with the brewery, won't be produced any more in the in the restaurant or the takeaway it'll be extracted through the platform
1: yeah this is fascinating as well so uh, if you actually so Deliveroo um, have a long term vision for what they're going to do with the company and part of it involves um, these dark kitchens right additions kitchens you'll see them kind of around the city they're very small industrial sites usually in very cheap areas of the city where there'll be a few porter cabins running kitchens now Initially, these were offered to restaurant partners of Deliveroo as a way of offering them increased capacity. So like you're a pizza restaurant every Friday night, your ovens are like full to bursting, you can't do any more pizza. Look, just come work in this kitchen. We've got a pizza oven in it. You can rent it for a tiny sum and just run a load more pizzas out. We'll even put a discount on your food so that it's a little bit cheaper, so that you're getting more orders. We'll help you build your business. Crazy. right? Now there would be loads of people running orders out of these editions, so in Brighton when I was working there the edition site was in Hove and people would just be running orders from Hove to all over the city um, from this one little kind of backstreet kitchen. now, what Delivery is looking at in the future is actually the full automation of these sites, mm. the exclusion of restaurant partners, and the creation of their own food offerings, because they have one of the most complicated data sets on our food preferences in history. They know if on a Saturday night you're likely to want burgers or pizza or whatever. They know minute by minute, hour by hour, when someone wants a milkshake, when someone wants Chinese, when someone wants Indian. They know all of the detail on this.
0: Is that the end game, full automation? Absolutely. I mean with, with Uber, for instance, you know they were very clear, yeah. on it, but it, they wouldn't explicitly say it, but the vast majority of the the jobs they are looking to perform by say the mid 2020s or mid you know 2030 they've got a whole center given over to this i believe in pittsburgh yeah yeah so, so they're, the they're a
1: driverless thing? car company without driverless cars right like they amazingly actually you know i begrudge to give capitalists a lot of credit for this but that's a really smart business model um, and they do have
0: something because they're testing what is it driverless volvos in pittsburgh yeah, i believe yeah yeah
1: no and that that labor force is clearly under immense threat of automation yeah. and this raises questions about Luddism, which i think are very interesting um, but yeah, with delivery the same the model is the same so Starship Technologies is the company that have these. You can actually see them being tested in London. I think that they have a London office. Where Starship Technologies produce what are essentially like self-driving shopping trolleys. Um, which will drive along pavements, can do any deliveries within two miles. The idea is that you'll have a stack of these outside the delivery kitchen. You'll take the food, put it in there, then they'll toddle off on their own little way around this two-mile radius to do deliveries wherever they can. Mm. Um, it's amazing. If you actually go to the sector conferences where they talk about these technologies, they talk about pavements as underutilised logistical infrastructure, right? Not actually underutilised by people, but underutilised evidently by capital, right? They want to be running loads of these little weird robots with anti-tampering devices and cameras on them and trackers. Through the streets to do kind of the job of a delivery courier. That's very clearly their goal in terms of reducing costs. Similarly, they also want to automate burger flipping, automate pizza stretching, all this kind of stuff. Like very simple fast food production, you can actually already automate. A company called Flippy in the United States, brilliant, brilliant name. Those guys are clearly serious intellects. They can it can flip burgers already. So they're looking at this end goal of full automation. And this is where Luddism is, I think, important, because it really opens question about what this struggle is going to develop into. I mean, either these workers who were taking action yesterday, these precarious platform workers, are going to win some kind of victories in the regulation and organisation of the sector, or they're going to be facing this future where they're increasingly going to be written out. And then there's the question of how do you respond to this network of um, weird little robots bundling on, along streets, putting out of, out of jobs. And I think the clearest reference point here is obviously machine breaking in kind of the, the British Industrial Revolution, where weavers were often seeing their skill being eroded, their jobs being taken by machinery, and responded by kind of breaking them and, and taking the fight to itself, the machinery. And now that's possibly a dynamic you see reoccurring in these circumstances where automation is entirely dispossessing these people of the capacity to work.
0: What did Marx call it, where basically had a supply chain which was outside of the factory and it was brought inside the factory
1: primitive accumulation was it primitive accumulation no i mean that's the that's the commons isn't it that's an,
0: that, it's another one anyway uh, i'll remember it negri talks about it right but he gives it a little sort of flip this is when you know i haven't read marx for a few years now I'm too busy know. sadly <laughs> No, you can't remember. I
1: don't it? know what you're on about. Aaron. Oh Sorry. no, it's a very. Well, it's I'm a very, sure you're. I'm sure you're right.
0: Yeah. So basically, in the sort of formation of the factory in the early 19th century, a lot of the supply chain. Oh yeah, the
1: the housing of outwork. That's right. Yeah. So like lots of so in many factories, like lots of small tasks would be sent home with people to the families that do outwork. In that's right. Yeah. It's also the, the formation of the first factories. Um, what you're actually doing is collecting craft people under one roof. Precisely. Uh, you don't actually organise labour, so that the, the manager's in control. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: You, so, can't, you can't really do that until you get steam power, which, although we get the first steam engines in the late sort of 1770s, 1780s, the first steam engines go back to the early 18th century. But, you know, what steam engine? They don't really diffuse within sort of industrial workplaces until the 1830s, 1840s. And if
1: you look at the history of worker resistance, I mean, there's huge struggles over the skilling and de skilling of workers around this kind of stuff. So the creation of a mass semi skilled workforce. I mean, some of the best examples in the United States, like the, the uh, I think it's 1892, the Homestead strike. In the steel industry, you have the attempt to kind of dispossess lots of workers of their skills and create a huge new semi-skilled workforce and this involves kind of military scale confrontations where there are uh, guard posts put all around the factory and the workers are locked out and there's men with guns standing in kind of sentinel posts shooting workers trying to get in to occupy their factory the creation of a semi-skilled workforce the dispossession of workers of the capacity to earn higher incomes to do all these kind of things is an incredibly violent process
0: we've got the Peterloo film coming out soon which Peterloo is Peter was 1819 right I Don't
1: test me on anything before 1848 is it too was, far It was the me. heart
0: of all this stuff, anyway. Okay. Frequently asked questions. Now, imagine I am Nick Ferrari, who, by the way, I found out yesterday was privately educated. I have no issue with that, but he sort of tries to present himself as a sort of, you know, a Gammonite voice of the everyday, oppressed, white, happens to earn £70,000 a year, <laughs> lives in the home counties in a four-bedroom detached house man. Um he would say, well, look, this strike was only 1% of the, of, the, of the workforce. How is that in any way representative? How would you, how would you counter
1: that? Well, I think in many ways um, it's important for the left to also respect the fact it was about 1% of the workforce. And that's a challenge to everyone listening to this, that there is a task here, like we said earlier, that... that our socialist movement at the moment lacks the organised class basis to actually enforce its demands on a mass scale. So there's a dual response to this. Firstly, yes, acknowledge that, um, that we do at the moment not have a sufficiently organised workforce for what we're attempting to do politically. And that, yes, people have to respond to this. People listening to this have to take kind of, you know, concrete forms of action in order to attempt to, like develop the workers movement, be it in their workplace or supporting other workplaces. But also I think that um, the reason you saw media coverage here, I mean Nick Ferrari himself I think would even have to admit after spending the entirety of yesterday talking about it, that this has hit a nerve because it's representative of far wider issues and only these workers have actually managed to jump the hoops and take action. But actually in general I think we now have a certain understanding of the conditions of labour that we are facing Incredibly low wage growth. I think that understanding that, you know, the worst since 1790. Well,
0: negative wage growth. Yeah. Which is, it's a wonderful. it's a wonderful contradiction. Negative wage growth. I've <laughs> been saying it for the best part of a decade. Yeah,
1: but I think people understand this now yep. on a, a generally wider level, and I think the, these struggles are beginning to be seen as a politically representative of a wider layer, and also generationally representative, where a lot of young people are now ending up in these kind of conditions of labour, where they are really trapped in jobs they never thought they would be in. So, with some of the workers at Weatherspoons, you're talking to people who have dropped out of university courses or completed university mm. courses. Fifty percent of young people are now, you know, going to university, and mm. lots of them are ending up in these jobs, which are they totally don't require them you know they, they there's no necessity to have any understanding of ancient greek history to serve food or uh, spoons, right there are certainly skills involved i would never claim it was unskilled labor mm. but a lot of people are being given the opportunity to expand their brains learn about kind of huge historical processes and then being forced into intensely alienating work and this work is intentionally de-skilled, intentionally difficult, intentionally intensified. And I think that's where the contradiction that increasing numbers of people are understanding comes from. That's why they're seen as representative, even if we're only talking numerically about quite small workforces.
0: I had a job in a Grand Union bar in Kentish Town maybe about 10 years ago. Nice. Um, It was sort of in the interim period between finishing my master's and doing my PhD. And one of the people working there, it's interesting you say this, he was a former currency trader and he'd been laid off by the financial crisis. He'd been to university. And obviously, he never thought in his late 20s he'd find himself on a minimum wage job in a Grand Union bar. And that's not a unique experience. Uh, And I'm sure it's nowhere near as intense now as it was in 2009 when this would have been. Uh, But like you say, those... Perceived expectations and they're falling short
1: seems to be a variable for a lot of this activism, doesn't it? Yeah. So the proletarianising middle class is essentially what we're looking at here. That's the class fraction where the proletarianising middle class is increasingly coming into contact with people who, you know, have worked in jobs like this all their life, right? And there's an alliance between the two, which I think is fundamentally important. And often, you know, people who would have expected to work in weather spoons all their life because they left school after the GCSEs or whatever um, are similarly like they're a core part of this constituency and are leading these proletarian uh, middle class people into some quite interesting industrial disputes. And that increasing alliance of the mass of society, you know, the, the crumbling of the central block of, you know, lawyers, doctors, professionals, whatever, into these two diffuse layers. Either mm. you're now high bourgeois, you know, you're 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 on the way to being Jeff Bezos, or you are part of an increasingly massified working class, that's where we're going to see an increase in labour. Well, struggles.
0: I quite like the term lumpen bourgeois. Yeah. Which is yeah. where a lot of these people, you know, they would have been the journalists, they would have been the lawyers, uh,
1: and yeah, these jobs are now yeah, very much self as slightly lumpen bourgeois. <laughs> well, no, I, I, guess,
0: well, I mean, my parents are work, come from a working class background, but I'm under no illusions. I've got a PhD, you know, but I would very much. I think it's a really great way of categorizing what you do. You know, yeah. journalism is a fantastic example. You know, there are people out there. Nick Cohen has a nice house in Islington. Paulie on Great Money. Uh, you know, I do question, do they really know the labour conditions for some of the freelancers that work in the publications that they work at? And, um, I mean, they're not silly people. They're obviously observant people. They're journalists. What do they think the political consequences of that are in the longer term? You know? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, and it's not just journalism, to be clear, right? It's the legal profession as well. You see a huge divergence in terms of generational cohorts, especially with barristers, self-employed. People in their 50s, 60s are doing very differently to people in their, you
1: know, mid-late 20s. Oh, to shout out a good comrades. I mean, Keir Milburn's upcoming book on Generation Left will be very interesting, I think, on some of this stuff, um, where we see this cleavage that is mapping um, generation and class onto one another, mm. right? where young people increasingly, I mean, we've seen the, the total hegemony of the Labour vote amongst young people, is fundamentally a feature of certain historical developments and the way in which the crisis of uh, 2008 was metabolised um, to put young people into, you know, university debt, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, that kind of differentiation, I think, is producing, as we said, an increasingly massified working class Um, which is composed of lots of heterogeneous factors, some with, you know, very different levels of education or whatever, but that is increasingly seeing their class interests as united. So there was one moment yesterday, I was talking to a Weatherspoons worker. I was talking about the midnight walkout they did. So the midnight walkout was fantastic. We were at the Post and Telegraph, and there was a group of um, not entirely unobvious supporters inside waiting for these workers to walk off the bar. Then we'd cheer them, go out with them. There was a crowd outside of other workers and, and other supporters to meet them. As this happened, um, they kind of walked out. We came out with them. Lloyd Russell Moyle, Labour MP, managed to get embroiled in a, a kind of a chaotic situation He's with great. the Weatherspoons manager. Fantastic MP. Really great to see someone there, um, kind of not just turning up on the picket line for 10 minutes, but at midnight on the day before <clears throat> when there was no one there. Yeah. You know? um, and then as we came outside, there was um, a march over to the other pub to bring the other pub workers out. Um, now, on this march, um, it's obviously kind of freshers time. Lots of students in Brighton, lots of you know young first years, absolutely plastered. But there was an instinctive response where a lot of these freshers were looking at this very low paid workforce, a lot of them kind of similar ages, but like, obviously, they're in different situations. And there was huge solidarity between the two, like the two were going backwards and forwards and, and kind of shouting and supporting each other. And one with the spoons worker, I remember. That's hugely surprising to me. Amazing, because I, I was kind of expecting. So there were some people, I mean, it was interesting, there were some people chanting E E E D L, some piss who were responding to, Sorry, pissheads, shouldn't say that off-com. I think
0: it's just about borderline. <laughs> Fine.
1: Um, there were some people chanting EDL, yeah. which is obviously interesting in some ways, the level of political consciousness that's implied by not only shouting eE edl in a kind of uh, an EDL demonstration, but in response to trade unionism. Yeah. That implies a level of political consciousness amongst the far right, which I think is, I think is worth thinking about. But also, um, these two factions were talking to each other, and when I talked to a Wetherspoon's work on The Coach to London the next day, he was like, yeah, you know we were totally together and I was like do you feel like you're in the same boat and it's absolute confidence yes we're in the same boat this Absolutely.
0: is the thing because you know 10 years ago if you were doing living wage activism in a Russell Group university in London the reality is most kids couldn't care less yeah. because the presumption was they'll never end up in that situation mm-hmm. Yeah, and you think that's changed not yeah. that it's you know not that it's completely capsized but you think there's been a significant shift in the last yeah, no, decade? I think there's
1: a shift in class composition where an increasing number of people are seeing their alliance with uh, minimum wage workers I mean you can see the compression right so the gap between the lowest paid workers and kind of the, the the lumpen bourgeoisie is much smaller than it used to be. So there's a much stronger sense of like communal um, communal interest coming out of those two social layers, which although they're very different culturally, often in migration status, often in all sorts of stuff, they're yeah. seeing each other's struggles as increasingly in common, I think. And unless you're going to see a trend in the, the long term secular trends of capitalism, I think that's only become... More the case. Right, so like wage compression, for instance. Yeah. Real wages are down, what, 11, 12% since 2008. One of the fascinating things at Weatherspoons, right? So, yeah. Weatherspoons um, has essentially, apart from the pub manager, um, who's on a salary of about 40K plus bonuses, I mean, they're, they're very well off, um, you have um, everyone else is basically in this internal labour market, which is designed to divide up lots of workers in basically the same conditions into lots of different pay grades. So, the point is you prevent a semi skilled workforce all identifying as part of the same class. Instead, you have a kitchen associate looking at a team leader and thinking, well, oh, that team leader's my boss because they're paid 15p more an hour to supervise mm. me or whatever. Mm. Um, that's the intention behind the kind of the management strategy of the internal labor market. But what you see with Weatherspoons is they've actually compressed the gaps so small now that workers are purposefully avoiding promotion because they know the the stress that will come with it. And when you actually look at who was out on strike, it was basically all grades up to pub manager. I mean, remarkable levels of coherence amongst what should have been a divided workforce. The managerial strategy here is these are all split by little grades, so they're not going to unite into one block. That totally failed in these instances. I think that failure, I mean, the internal labour market is used in so many different contexts, in car manufacturing, in offices, and all these kind of places. That failure is interesting because it comes because Tim Martin wasn't willing to give the layer of team leaders, kitchen managers. Yeah. the increase in pay that would have allowed this to maintain its kind of nice disciplinary foreman, force yeah. essentially yeah the, the, or the foreman of change side the supervisors are now on strike right that was what was fascinating about yesterday
0: okay next FAQ hours um, contracts are good they benefit people who are studying maybe they have a child they only want to work a few days a week what's the argument against that
1: I mean, the vast majority of people on zero hours contracts, if you actually ask them if they take a full contract, I mean, I, I don't know the uh, empirical data, but from from certainly experience, I think it's very unlikely they would agree with you. Um, but apart from that straightforward, I think we need to also be careful here not to not defend flexibility. Right. I talked to delivery workers, Uber Eats workers in particular. They do like the flexibility that comes with their job. They like two things about it, really. The first is that they don't have a human supervisor because, you know, in basically any workplace, you know, you think about the Grand Union or whatever, your immediate human supervisor, the person who's really bossing you around is likely to be the person you really hate, right? The person who you have the most interpersonal antagonism with. In Deliveroo, uh, Uber Eats, that person has actually been automated. They are now part of an app. Um, So in classical career work, you'd have a dispatcher on your radio. That person's gone now. Um, So they really enjoy the lack of in-person supervision because it means that actually they don't have a boss on on their back the entire time and they also enjoy the fact that yeah they can reorganise work so if you're really hungover, uh, you don't have to go and get on your moped and start riding immediately at 9am in the morning right they do enjoy that right but at the same time if you look at the data that the IWGB have collected um, when talking to kind of delivery Uber Eats riders the majority of them I think it's something like 80% say yeah the fact that we're classified as self-employed the fact that we're not given the rights of employees that we're not given contracts is clearly used to exploit us now, this is a very common sense position amongst the workforce. I think they all know that despite the fact that they have flexibility, which they want to defend, they're also being exploited as a result of it. Zero hours contracts are exactly the same thing. The vast majority of zero hours contracts are not what exactly what people mm-hmm. want, but people still want a degree of flexibility to turn down a shift. And what we should be fighting for, I think, in, in kind of developing policies for a Corbynist government is that we're not actually just fighting for like, we want everyone to have a nine for five. For God, I mean, the refusal of work is a, an uh, one of, kind of Nunvara's old themes, right?
0: You make it sound like we've discarded it. <laughs> <their work. laughs> okay, well, Just it, to be clear, we haven't, you know.
1: Well, so the refusal of work was a, really an important part of the passage of struggle throughout the seven, 60s and 70s, right, where people didn't want these intensely alienating, intensely boring nine-to-five jobs, mm-hmm. the rejection of like complete conventional employee status. I think we have to be careful now, not to say, oh, that's what we want again. Yeah, we want to go back into like full employment. That's really what we're keen on. No, we want certain elements of flexibility, but we, we want to push it further. I mean, it's what Verno calls right, the communism of capital. right? I think zero-hours contracts are a good example of the communism of capital, where a demand for labour flexibility, a demand for some freedom from the immediate supervision of a boss, some demand for the right to say, I don't want to come into work today, gets kind of reinterpreted and sold back to us as, hey, it's a flexible zero-hours contract. Mm. And we need to find ways of going through that contradiction ourselves, rather than just saying we want everyone to become workers again. Because if you were to go to the Wetherspoons workers we were talking to yesterday, or the Uber Eats workers and say, here's contract 40 hours a week, majority of them wouldn't want it. But they would want some form of security, and that where we have to look at other forms of security, maybe outside the workplace. So Universal Basic Services, I think, is a really interesting yeah. one on that front.
0: Yeah, I have some thoughts on this. So, you know, people always say, oh, how do we get the platform back under public ownership, make it for, serve the common good? Um, how What would an Airbnb for the many look like? And I think well, I'd just rather nationalise Premier Inn. Yeah. And actually, Nick, Nick Cernak has a good line on this in terms of productivity. If you look at um, a hotel and how it's cleaned and how food is served, in terms of output per hour... Sort of GDP per person per hour worked, it's clearly much higher in a Premier Inn than it is with an Airbnb. Mm -hmm. So, is that bad? I mean, what 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 should the political end game be here? So, if what would worker ownership of uh, Uber Eats look like, Uh, or is it, or is the the platform by by nature of an algorithm deciding who goes where and knows what preferences about who, is that in itself a, a bad? political institution?
1: I think we could totally make use of these algorithms for amazing purposes. I think like some of them, uh, some elements of a platform we would obviously want to redesign under workers' control, but I think there are certainly huge social uses. So I've been thinking about this recently and I think You've got to conceptualise of Deliveroo and Uber Eats as kind of um, care platforms in a strange way, right? So the image of Deliveroo that they'll sell to everyone, if you see the adverts, you'll notice it's sushi, right? Like it's almost always sushi or some kind of like Thai food or like some interesting kind of exotic, not standard takeaway. The
0: stuff what- made by people who can no longer get the work permits because <laughs> yeah. of the Tories, yeah.
1: So like what is actually delivered on the doorstep and who is it delivered to? Yeah, By far and away... KFC, Burger King, pizzas, cheap pasta, what is delivered by Uber Eats, McDonald's, vast majority is McDonald's, right? What people actually use these platforms for is to rectify crises of their own social reproduction. So often these proletarianizing middle classes get home, they've got the space in their budget to like buy food services, but they are also just exhausted because they've just worked a 50 hour week and they've got these, you know, out of office emails pinging in all the time. They're like constantly being pushed. And these workers then use these services to try and rectify their own crisis of social reproduction, but they're high, high social capital solutions. So you don't feel like, oh, I'm just ordering a takeaway. You're like, no, I'm eating delivery. I want to eat high quality restaurant food in my own home. And then you actually order like a, a family bucket from KFC or whatever, right? So that's how these things are currently used. But that indicates that there is a fundamental underlying social reproductive, so- socially reproductive function going on here where... We really have to be interested in what these platforms do for people. They allow people to have food, hot food in their own home. That's an incredibly socially useful service. You can imagine with an ageing population, right, Meals on Wheels in many cities across the UK has mm. been stripped back horribly. I mean, mm. in Brighton, you can get a frozen meal for about £4 on a Meals on Wheels service. Now, that's obviously really unaffordable for a lot of people on the state pension, for a lot of people in poverty in their old age. Now, could Deliveroo or Uber Eats or a Deliveroo or Uber Eats style service do huge things for those people? Absolutely. Who else could it do huge things for? Well, I mean, people with serious mental health problems. I mean, if you're really depressed and you can't get out of the house, you can imagine like some people have networks who will bring food to them, who will mm. support them, who will mm. be able to help them. Lots of people get isolated if you particularly have long-term mental health mm. problems. So those kind of services would be of real use to people. Young yeah. families. Yeah. So exactly. I was just talking to... Um, uh, someone who just had a baby the other day mm. and they were saying you know uh, social use for delivery just bring me food because I'm looking after like a three month old infant yeah. at the moment Yeah. these social uses we need to think about how we can start to bring them into what would be part of I think so if you look at the Universal Basic Services report from the UCL um, there's a fascinating bit on food where they talk about like a full community food solution which is like community canteens and this kind of stuff that was the bit I found quite unpersuasive was
0: it? food as a UBS seems quite difficult
1: Okay. do you not think? why, well, why difficult?
0: Well, if you if you say look we allocate healthcare or transport which, transport which I can understand you get the dividend of automation yeah. and you know a bunch of technological ch- trends and you say this now means we're going to provide a a hugely important human right, free at the point of consumption. I get that with transport, I get that with education, I get that with healthcare. How can you do that with food? So
1: I think maybe we're not talking about... Unless we collectivise all food production and distribution. So I think we should be talking on on low levels about collectivising some forms of food production. So Mm. I think that, you know, going back to the social function of pubs, right, one of my favourite policy ideas is um, reintroducing um, 2% beer, or like small beer, that was was a cornerstone of, of British pub culture during, you know, much of our history. Um, and then reducing the duty on it so that you have, and reducing the drinking age on it to sixteen, so you have like a kind of beer that you can drink without getting really drunk. That brings young people, old people, back into the community hubs that pubs are. Well, similarly with food, I think we should be talking about community kitchens, but like maybe jazzing it up a bit, coming up with a better name. But the collectivization of food production in local areas is obviously going to perform a huge social function. I mean, it, in itself, it creates the kind of thick social networks which will provide care, um, and then these could be networks. But it quite doesn't clearly. tend.
0: I mean, transport. And healthcare, I mean, I quite, I'm quite happy with a state-backed monopoly
1: providing those. Food? It doesn't have to be a total monopoly across all society, right? Like, I think we should have a diversity of food providers. I'm not absolutely saying that, you know, there's going to be, like, one state Aldi, and then, or maybe a state Aldi for actually distribution is fine, but, like, one state McDonald's where it's the only place you can eat. Yeah. But I think the collectivization of food production is intensely important. I mean, it's human society, right? Like, mm. you know, and I know that if, you know, y- you love pasta, right? Like, if we were to be doing something for someone we cared, we would be making, like, for your mum or whatever, you'd make your mum dinner, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that's intensely important for human sociality. And and what is our vision of socialism if it's not accentuating these elements of our lives? Which I agree love. with you,
0: I agree in the long term, but I just think the demand for UBS, for transport, health and education, 100% plausible within, within the, the sort of, the duration between now and the next labour manifesto actually yeah, yeah.
1: I just think with food it's Yeah no definitely not by the next labour manifesto but we have to have start having discussions about how we can provide some of these services as an addition to things maybe like the NHS so it would be quite possible if someone comes in with severe mental health problems that you could say I mean alongside your prescription for Citalopram we're also going to give you um, 20 meals a month on some kind of like deliveroo state nhs service right. right like you can immediately imagine the difference that would make in mental health care in this country i mean some small funding in that regard you know that under workers control could immediately start to change people's lives massively change the way people deal with you know the stresses of late capitalism and similarly i think you know you, maternity and paternity pay you could add you know certain provision that an employer has to provide a certain amount of credits towards these delivery services or these state-run delivery services i think that you can see the way in which These workforces do, in many ways, very socially useful work. I don't want to totally abolish the idea that taking food to people is a bad thing. You know, you get milk for your partner or whatever, you know, that's care. But we should be thinking about how we can reintroduce them in kind of a socialised form. You're persuading me.
0: Okay. (laughs) So we've got five minutes left. Um, Quickly, next steps. So is there, again, a timeline where we can predict what may or may not happen. What's the plan with regards to Weatherspoon's workers, Uber Eats workers, delivery workers, etc.?
1: So there's a few things coming up. I mean, on October the 9th is going to be the next thing. That's when um, UPHD, um, United Private Hire Drivers, is going to be bringing Uber workers out in London for, I think, what they're calling their first ever strike um, at Aldgate Tower, which will be very interesting to see how that develops. Uber workers? Uber workers. So taxi, Uber taxi. Wow. Not Uber Eats. Um, That will be, yeah, a first. It'll be fascinating to see, because, I mean, you can imagine 300 mopeds uh, jammed up Aldgate pretty well last week. You can imagine what 300 cars would do just absolute chaos um, so that will be an interesting development we should keep our eyes on but i think more generally we have to look to deal with this gap between the state of our politics and the state of its like material basis mm. um, and that will mean progressive organizing efforts that means you know en masse doing all sorts of work and um, be it with i mean i'll plug acorn you know a fantastic renters union that helps many people facing eviction in cities around the uk doing work with kind of Base organisations like that, also massive workplace organisation. We need to be laying the ground for a rank and file labour movement that can exert some control over production. And I think we need to be thinking in those terms, because anything less than that, I'm deathly afraid that we will get a labour government without the capacity to face down it threat the threats it faces. We need to have kind of an organised social power. And going forwards, when you get the next time that McDonald's, uh, Weatherspoons. TGI Fridays workers are, are going to go on strike again. We need to be putting our efforts as a movement into supporting them. I think Momentum made excellent steps and the Labour Party made excellent steps. John Don uh, John or Don McDonnell? I'm not sure both. Don McDonald.
0: Don Don McDonald. Don McDonald. Don
1: McDonald yeah. put excellent steps in. He, I mean he said that every Labour MP if there was a picket line in their constituency they had to attend. Yeah. Right? Um, and Momentum, actually, in many places in Sheffield and some others, called local demonstrations outside Wetherspoons to support these strikes. Yeah, really unprecedented stuff. We need stuff. to be looking at those kind of developments. I think it's very important that Momentum has taken that step, and I think it's absolutely to be applauded and developed further. And anyone who's involved in Momentum projects, so-called Labour Party projects, need to be taking that as an example for a kind of a new Corbynism from below that we can push forward. Um, that development, I think, for me, is the single most important development we can see over the period between now and an election. I think that if we don't have a massive increase in the social power of the left on those kind of practical, thick social tie levels, then we're really going to struggle with our programme. More generally,
0: what does struggling mean? You just think it will it will automatically fail?
1: I don't think it will automatically fail. But you are what is coming up now. Yeah. Post the next general election, should Labour get a majority, will be an intensified period of class struggle in very old school terms. Right, the ruling class are not going to accept this programme lying down. And what you see coming next, I mean, it could take many and varied forms. I mean, there's no need to be alarmist and say it will definitely be Allende. But there's also no guarantee that it definitely won't be Allende. Yeah, Yeah. the the, the scale of Allende to Mitterrand, all of them are failure. Mm. And the stronger you are in the workplace, the stronger you are in the community, the stronger you are to defend against those attempts to turn you into an Allende or a Mitterrand.
0: Okay, finally, Um, if people want to learn more about you, your work, notes from below, where can they go? How can I get in
1: touch? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Callum Camp one um, I should also say the one thing we need to do is political education. Um, we've obviously, I've almost gone past the point where we can talk about that, but political education is very important and we need to kind of be looking at examples like Comrade Seth Wheeler is doing some interesting stuff with Kaiwi that we should be looking for on that front. Um, but alongside that, uh, people can look at notes from below at CallumCamp1 on Twitter, at notes from underscore below on Twitter. Um, yeah, that's pretty much us.
0: Great. You can tweet also this picture of Wetherspoons and so people can look at that since 1979. Fascinating fascinating image which maps really onto Britain after Thatcher. My name's Aaron Bastani. Callum Kant, you've been fantastic. This is Navarra FM. Don't worry, James Butler will be back same time, same place next week.